Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Magid Mandur. Magid is a political analyst who writes Open Democracy's Chronicles of the Arab Revolt column, covering the affairs of the Arab world with a special focus on social change in the post-Arab Spring Middle East. He's also a Sada writer for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a contributor to the Middle East Eye, and a regular Arab Digest contributor. Magid, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be back. Magid, you've written for Arab Digest that CC is in a zero-sum economic game with inflation galloping ahead and massive debts growing by the day. Is he running out of road in his efforts to keep Egypt's economy afloat? Uh, so the short answer is yes, absolutely yes. Um, so the economic development model that is heavily reliant on uh, debt is now crashing down. So the level of debt is so high that is, I think it's consuming a bit over 50% uh, of uh, the state budget. The interest rates, now he has no choice but to increase them because he just has to borrow more. Uh, because the tax base is just way too weak uh, to be able to uh, pay back the debt. And there is a, a global kind of inflationary wave, which is also kind of uh, exerting uh, a lot of uh, pressure. So his options are very, very limited. And the way that it looks like he will require either a massive loan or a bailout or debt uh, restructuring at some point. And considering the uh, global economic situation, this will not be forthcoming. This will not be an easy uh, conversation to have. Uh, so he's really running out of uh, options, at least in uh, the short term. And he doesn't have a lot of time to remedy this. So yeah, it, it's in a very difficult uh, economic uh, position. Even the government, which rarely uh, acknowledges that there's a problem, is now saying that they have a problem. So that's a rare feat uh, for uh, CC. And how is this impacting ordinary Egyptians when they're going out to the supermarket or trying to pay their rent? How, how is this economic crisis hitting them? Well, I would expect that the poverty rates, which are already around 30%, they will increase even more. Uh, and that's 30% by the government's counting. So in reality, it's probably even more. So this will have a very, let's say, strong impact on the poor and on the middle class. Simply put, the regime has no... I mean, they don't have a lot of options except... Uh, reduce uh, social spending more. Now they're refraining from doing that because they know if this happens, this will be just way too much. Uh, inflation, uh, I think, is around 40%. Uh, it won't get less. Uh, there is a lot of pressure uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the pound, which I think lost around 18% of its value a couple of months ago. And I don't think they have a lot of choices except just to devalue the pound even further, which means that inflation will uh, increase more. Uh, just as a reminder, Egypt is the largest importer of wheat in the world, which means that as the currency weakens, the food prices uh, increase significantly. So they're in a very difficult situation uh, and the majority will suffer significantly, um, unfortunately. 
the model that President Sisi is promoting is highly reliant on the military. Now, should the economy fail as drastically as you suggest it will, is he at risk of a coup, having, after all, led one himself in 2013 against Mohamed Morsi? I think that that's unlikely to happen because the military doesn't seem, at least for me, as um, it doesn't seem to be factionalized in the sense he doesn't have to, he doesn't seem to contend with uh, another center of power within the military establishment, at least one that I can see, because we have to remember that the regime is a complete black box. Second of all, there is no popular support really for a coup. Um, so in order for a coup to work, there has to be some sort of a popular backing somewhere. So if we're going to wake up and just a coup is going to happen, that's not very likely. Second of all, the military has benefited greatly from his economic model. And they don't have a civilian counterpart or a civilian partner. So even if there's a coup, the military will face difficulties to whitewash the coup or to hide behind the civilian government. So there are significant difficulties in having a change from the top. So I don't think that that's likely. I think the regime will continue the way that it is. It's very resistant to reform. So uh, it's, it's, it's a very unlikely possibility uh, that uh, that would happen. The military has insinuated and entrenched itself into many economic sectors. Absolutely. Can you uh, give our listeners an idea of how that model works? Basically, the model is rather simple, but actually quite uh, devastating. Uh, so uh, after the coup of 2013, there was a change in uh, economic policy where basically growth was debt-driven uh, through uh, massive investments in infrastructure, road, uh, transportation hubs, and this was uh, either directly uh, executed by the military itself or uh, the military managed the funds. So this kind of opened up the pathway for the military to expand dramatically. And not just in the implementation of the projects, but they were able to also expand in uh, what would be considered as the domain of the private sector. So this means that they have tentacles in the consumer goods area, things like uh, water bottles. They have a large, um, a very large stake in the cement uh, industry, in, in uh, steel uh, production, in marble and uh, uh, quarries. So uh, all of this is due to the ability of the military to control the state and through their control of the state, they can change economic policies, laws, regulation in a way that would allow them to control the pace and the direction of uh, economic uh, growth in a way that they would be able to kind of accumulate wealth as uh, the military elites. The difficulty uh, as well is that this is not under civilian control at all. Uh, we don't really know. So it is uh, really a black box. We don't know their size really or the complexity of the uh, military's uh, economic activity, but. What is clear is that it is 
growing and they are uh, also kind of um, employing uh, coercive tactics against uh, the private sector. They were uh, uh, known businessmen that were uh, imprisoned. Here I'm referring to the Tabit family because they wouldn't basically sell their uh, company to uh, the military. This led to a shrinkage and uh, underperformance uh, of uh, the private sector. The difficulty in this is uh, the taxes. Uh, so as far as we know, the military doesn't really pay any uh, taxation, which is one of the reasons of the financial situation that the country uh, is now facing, because the tax base is very weak, the taxation system is very regressive, and it is mostly tailored towards uh, consumption, which weakens the market in uh, the country and also uh, Egypt's exports are not very uh, competitive so yeah it's a very vicious cycle which the military's economic model is just making worse and worse. Sisi has friends in high places not least of which are the Americans but let's focus first on another close ally and that is Israel. How vested are the Israelis in the Sisi presidency? So the Israelis, I would venture to say, are one of the closest allies, if not the closest ally uh, to uh, Sisi. So there are kind of, let's say, reports that they are actually mediating between him and the Americans. They are very supportive of the regime and, and the presidency. There were uh, even reports, I think it was in 2015, uh, if I'm not wrong, of uh, Israeli uh, air strikes in Sinai, which is unheard of. Uh, so the level of cooperation is is extremely high. Sisi is seen as a dependable uh, ally. Uh, there is no threat coming from Egypt. And he has been very cooperative uh, in terms of uh, blockading Hamas, uh, co-opting it, controlling it. So yes, the alliance is extremely strong. It is at a historic high. It is very strong diplomatic support, as well as there are very close economic uh, ties through uh, gas deals. Basically, uh, Israeli uh, gas would be uh, exported to uh, Egypt, where it would be um, liquefied and then sold into Europe. So the economic ties are very strong. The diplomatic ties are very strong as well as, and that's very important, the military cooperation as well is very strong, especially in Sinai and in Gaza. Well, now you've mentioned North Sinai, where there is a long-running insurgency by an ISIS affiliate. The Israelis have quietly been supporting the Egyptians in what is effectively a low-level war. How is Sisi faring in that war? Well, again, it's very difficult to tell because the level of information is very, very, very low, uh, especially in Sinai. So the insurgency has been really going on since 2011. It really picked up after the coup in 2013. And there was a point when there were almost daily attacks uh, on uh, security uh, personnel, which based on what CC said, has left thousands uh, dead. Uh, I think he said the number uh, a couple of months ago. So it was quite deadly, but it wasn't big enough to kind of uh, destabilize the uh, regime. Um, over the past couple of years, it seems that the trend has been for it to go down. There was uh, 
or there is also cooperations from the local tribes to work with the uh, security forces, which wasn't the case before, which seems to have helped, but it's still active. The fighting is actually still uh, going on. Um, and if I remember correctly, a month ago or two months ago, there was a mass uh, attack that left uh, dozens dead. Uh, I think it was on a security checkpoint protecting a water pump. So the insurgency is still there, but its size or its, or, or, or its level or its complexity is very hard to gauge. As I said, the regime has basically turned it into a black box. But what we know for sure is that they have used extremely heavy-handed tactics, including the use of heavy weaponry, airstrikes, artillery, in uh, civilian populated areas, as well as the uh, population policies. They've, they have raised houses, farmlands uh, in mass, basically, uh, kind of creating a refugee uh, crisis, an internal one, which is rarely actually talked uh, about. So the insurgency is still ongoing, uh, like nine years on. Uh, and it doesn't look like it will be completely over anytime soon. But at the same time, they won't win. That is uh, also very clear. Just to put this also into, into perspective, the estimated size of the insurgency is around 1,000 fighters. So it's not massive, but they seem to be extremely effective. And of course, uh, extremism flourishes where human misery flourishes. Absolutely. Yes. And as you said, the regime has come down very hard on civilians in North Sinai, uh, people who are already suffering from severe economic deprivation. Uh, so the tactics followed by the regime didn't really help. His other friends in the region are Saudi Arabia and the UAE. How engaged are those two Gulf states in Egypt? And, and I want to ask you too about those two islands in the Red Sea. Tehran and Sanafir that uh, Sisi has uh, agreed to turn over to Saudi Arabia. So they are both heavily engaged. So just as a reminder, they were one of the primary backers of the regime uh, after the coup. And they've been very financially generous, basically giving the regime uh, billions. Uh, I think one uh, estimate is that between 2011 and 2019, Egypt received, I think, a bit over 90 billion in loans and in aid. Most of this aid had very little strings uh, attached uh, to it, so it was extremely crucial, especially in the first years of the uh, regime's inception. Without it, I think the regime would not have been able to survive. The economic situation was extremely uh, dire. But the difficulty here is that the regime did not deliver what it promised it would. Uh, besides repressing the Brotherhood, uh, it didn't really follow up in terms of, of let's say, the Saudi and the uh, Emirati um, regional wars and the regional um, adventures. So, for example, Egypt didn't really get involved in Yemen. Uh, in Libya, uh, Sisi tried to follow a bit of an uh, independent uh, policy. Even now, when they're talking about uh, what they call a NATO in uh, the region, uh, Egypt seems to be extremely reluctant. There is no desire for a foreign 
adventures. Egypt really doesn't see uh, Iran as a real threat to it. So now the model is actually changing a bit, is that rather than just give uh, aids and loans, it is towards direct investment in, as in uh, let's say, uh, a state-owned asset. In April, uh, CC said that he's planning on uh, privatizing 40 billion worth of uh, the public sector, 10 billion a year uh, for the next four years. So the primary objective of those would basically come um, from uh, the Gulf. They would be the main uh, investors. So for the transfer of the islands, they, they seem to be on the way to be officially uh, transferred to Saudi uh, sovereignty, which some reports claim is the first step towards uh, normalization of relations between uh, the Saudis and the uh, Israelis, since uh, kind of maintaining uh, the passage through the uh, islands was one of the uh, stipulations in uh, the peace uh, treaty between uh, Egypt and Israel. So it seems to be at least that's what the reports are uh, claiming that it is the first step towards normalization, which is not particularly shocking uh, since it has been a trend now for the past few years, but it would be um, a historic move towards cementing uh, this uh, alliance between the uh, Israelis the Saudis and the Egyptians. So to sum up then, the Israelis require a cast iron guarantee from the Saudis that uh, for the islands to be transferred, they need this guarantee that they will have free passage, uh, which was included in, as you said, the, the 1979 peace deal. And that once they have that agreement from the Saudis, that will facilitate the uh, move towards Saudi Arabia, recognizing Israel, joining the uh, Abraham Accords. Meanwhile, once again, the Palestinians are left behind. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, they have been left behind, I would say, for over two decades now. So it's really not new. Uh, Arab uh, support for uh, the Palestinians has been waiting for a long time. But of course, it will make their situation even more and more dire, uh, open up the way for the complete uh, colonization of whatever is left of uh, Palestine. Um, so the situation of the Palestinians regionally is very difficult. They don't have any backers anymore and they really don't have much options left. Their faith in the peace uh, process was not rewarded. And there is no prospect now for a real genuine peace for uh, the Palestinians where they would actually have some of their uh, historic uh, rights. It seems that now the trend or that there is an acceptance that uh, the Palestinians now have to live under Israeli uh, sovereignty. Somehow, I'm assuming as uh, kind of a, a second class, I don't want to even say the word citizen because they won't be citizens. But it's clear that uh, this is another step towards the liquidation of the Palestinian cause and the complete colonization of Palestine. Hmm. Now, uh, just uh, turning back to the economic uh, situation, if Sisi needs a massive bailout, and it looks like he will, uh, will the Saudis and the Emiratis rush to his aid? I don't think so. 
I really do not believe so because, uh, as I said, he did not deliver uh, what he is supposed to deliver. But he's in a very difficult spot, so it's the question of will he promise them again that he will uh, intervene more in any foreign policy adventures, but he's not a credible ally. He did not do what he, uh, what he promised he would do. So in the most likely scenario is that he would probably try to get a bailout from the uh, IMF, which means that there would be very strong austerity measures there. But it is a question if the uh, IMF will kind of address the elephant in the room, which is the military's role in the economy, and if it will somehow open up the path towards a demilitarization uh, of the economy. But that's also extremely unlikely because CC has some domestic constraints. He simply cannot do that. Uh, he has put all of his uh, eggs in the military's basket. What is unique in this regime in since 1952, there was always a civilian counterbalance, at least something that was there. Egypt now does not have a ruling party, which means that the entire backing of the regime comes from the military. So if he is not able to appease the military and for some reason they decide that he should go, then he's going to go the following day. So he can't really reduce their size in the economy. The consequences for him would be catastrophic. And by now, they are so entangled that it's not a policy decision that can be taken swiftly and it will take a long term to uh, implement. Um, so it's not a simple decision and it would require like a lot of changes in the laws and in the regulations as well as bureaucratic changes in the structure of the state, um, how funds are being managed, tax reform. All of this are massive undertakings that he does not have the political capital to do on his own. He doesn't have the constituency to back him in that. So he, so in a way, he has been too successful. <laughs> he uh, set out to build a military-dominated state, a military-dominated regime, a military-dominated uh, economy. And he was so successful that it would be very hard for him to actually backtrack. That would be extremely difficult. So even if he wants to, I don't think he can. And he doesn't have the power to. Sisi is the face of the military dictatorship. Uh, he's, uh, yes, he is very powerful, but uh, he cannot decide on his own what to do. So there will be stiff resistance to it. Uh, the military is not going to back down. And there is no perception of the danger that is coming to hit them. Uh, I think. So it's a question of how deep the economic crisis will be and what will be the popular reaction to it. Uh, that is kind of the number in the formula which not a lot of people are thinking about because who knows how it, how, how it will look like and there is this idea that the people will not revolt anymore but who knows, this is very hard to tell. So if there is uh, popular pressure Maybe it will lead to some changes, but the regime itself has, let's say, barricaded itself. They have made it extremely difficult also for uh, popular 
pressure to work in the way that it did in uh, 2011. Donald Trump famously called Sisi his favorite dictator. But how tight is the relationship now between Cairo and Washington in the Biden presidency? So in the beginning, Biden tried to distance himself from Sisi, but that didn't really last long. Uh, so it's clear that uh, Egypt is not on the top of his list, nor is the Middle East, actually. The focus is not there, but he did try to distance himself. But there is no fundamental change in policy besides suspending, I think, 300 million of U.S. Uh, aid uh, out of 1.3 billion. And I think they even released 150 million from that later on. So no real material change. The sales of uh, arms continues. Uh, aid is flowing. Um, there is no real change besides some rhetoric of saying uh, that he won't follow Trump's policies. But in reality, on the ground, the policies are very similar. Uh, some people were hopeful that he would be able to exert pressure for some political easing. Uh, now, CC is trying to do something called the National Dialogue, which is, of course, excluding the Brotherhood, which kind of makes the, the dialogue a bit meaningless. So they said that there will be a political uh, easing. So they've released around 250 political uh, prisoners, but they have actually arrested 400 more uh, new people. So it doesn't seem to be a fundamental change. Um, it doesn't seem that the Biden presidency has exerted any real significant pressure on the regime to change its uh, policies. So there is no real fundamental change. I would say on the surface, the relationships are not as warm as they were with Trump. But on the policy level, there is very little, if any, change. And, and finally, Maggot, uh, there are those who will look somewhat askance, shall I say, at the fact that the next climate conference in November is in Sharm el-Sheikh with President Sisi presiding. It does seem a tad incongruous to me, and I wonder if it strikes you the same way. Uh, indeed. I don't know who thought that this would be a good idea to have an international climate conference in a country ruled by a military dictatorship. And also, Sisi's green record isn't particularly stellar. The regime has been consistently trying to change the uh, urban space by basically bulldozing uh, over the green spaces, trees, all of that to build more bridges, uh, roads. They have been basically destroying the heritage of uh, Cairo in what seems to be a deliberate policy. So the decision is very odd and I'm very interested to see how the regime is going to deal with protests during that time uh, because it's, it's, it's an international conference with uh, activists in a place that has jailed protesters for the past nine years now. So it, it will be very interesting. I think the foreign minister said once that they're going to have a hall or like a designated area for uh, protesters. So, yeah, it's a very odd decision. And again, it's really showing the level of international complicity, uh, like, let's see how the international community is looking the other way when it comes to the regime uh, and its uh, policies.
So it's very disheartening, it's very depressing uh, that the regime isn't even being sanctioned diplomatically, uh, not even at that level. Yes, as you say, Megat, it will be interesting to see how President Sisi deals with protests and, and protesters, which of course are a, a major component to these climate change meetings. We'll have to wait and see on that uh, in November. In the meantime, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Egyptian analyst and commentator, Magid Mandur. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 80,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon Music. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest Daily Newsletter features the very best of mean analysts, analysts like Magid, a regular Digest contributor. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.